0: Welcome in to the House of L Podcast Episode 121 I am the L Of the House of L Podcast I've been trying to get more print journalists On, this, on the podcast Because I want to know what it's like to Do what they do Especially right now And I'm so excited To have Nader on the show This kid <laughs> I am blown away by his ability to tell stories. I am blown away by his understanding of the world. And when you consider how young he is, and I' no disrespect, Nader, um, how young he is, the fact that he has the job that he has as the education reporter at The Sun Times and seems to really understand, What's happening in the streets? What's happening in the schools? And the reason that he was able to do that is that he kind of gave in to really doing the work and reporting. So I'm glad that he had time to, to talk with me. And he gave me an hour. And it's an hour of really, really good stuff. We will get to that momentarily. The show is brought to you by our friends over at 56david.com. Team Hochberg. So look. If you are thinking about buying a house or refinancing your loan or you just want to try and have better financial literacy, David Hochberg can help you with that. He helped me with my house. He helped me with my condo in Kenwood. He was invaluable in that entire process. You should call him. 855-56-DAVID. Now, when you call David, tell him that you heard about him on the House of L podcast because that helps us. And, and you should hire him. like You should work with him if you're looking to buy a home or you're trying to refinance. He's helping this podcast grow. I'll have an announcement about that on the back end of the interview with Nader. But he's significant in the growth of this podcast. We can do some things because of his sponsorship that are going to allow us to, to hit a couple of different things Things. And I get to, I was joking with Tony Gill about this this morning. I get to be like Puff Daddy now. I don't write rhymes, I write checks. It'll all make sense when I explain it on the other end of this interview. But first, I, I want you to hear it. Now, and before I tell you that, you have to understand I got to get the legal in for David. Homeside Financial is an equal housing lender, NMLS number 1124061. Nader Issa, Covers education for the Chicago Sun-Times. The word that comes to mind in describing him is impressive. And I was really struck. We did Chicago Weekend Review a few weeks ago. I've, I've been following Nader for a long time, but we did Chicago Weekend Review. And I was blown away by his grasp of subject matter when it comes to education, but he seems to know a lot about a lot. He's also like a crazy sports fan, and I enjoy that because this this guy who is this very diligent, (laughs) measured reporter is kind of a Chicago sports meatball, and we talk about that inside this conversation. We also talk about, and it's, it's where things start, apparently they are doing something right in the journalism department up at Loyola because not only did they produce Nader, they produced Shams. Shams Taranya and and Nader Issa were walking around that campus at the same time. They're about the same age, and both of those guys have had tremendous impact on journalism. It's crazy to me, and everyone at the Phoenix up there and everyone in the comm department and journalism department at Loyola should take a bow because these young men have, have found their lane and they have run straight through a wall, which is phenomenal. So Nader Issa and I talked about a lot of stuff and we started with the fact that he got his journalism chops by breaking some big news and really speaking truth to power. At Loyola, I went
1: to Loyola, graduated just a few years ago. Uh, people are surprised when I tell them how young I am. Um, I, uh, I graduated a few years ago, studied journalism, studied business, um, covered the men's basketball team over there just before they went to the Final Four. So I was a little upset about that. Uh, but yeah, Loyola was a good spot. Were you in classes with Shams at all? We went to school at the same time. We were in the same class. Um, <clears throat> but I, I don't think we ever had a class together. But I, I mean, we'd see each other. I, uh, we had some mutual
0: friends. Yeah, I was just wondering because there's like two Wonder Kids <laughs> just kind of hanging out at Loyola. I'm not. I'm not the Shams type of Wonder Kid, not yet. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know. I think you're not London. being you're you're <laughs> not being completely fair to yourself. Where'd you grow up? Uh, Western suburbs, um, out in
1: Lombard. Um, so grew up out there, been in, been in the Chicago area my whole life. So was sports the thing that you wanted to do? Yeah, it was. Um, I, I got into journalism originally cause I wanted to cover sports. I was a huge sports guy. Um, I even originally wanted to, to go into maybe a front office. Um, that, that was sort of my dream. Um, but then, I, and in, in school, my, uh, my business major focused on sports, uh, uh, sports business. So I, uh, I, I, once I got into the journalism stuff, um, and I had a, a story in college that, that really, really, uh, drew me in more to journalism. I was like, screw it. I'm going to stay in journalism. Um, and then the, the pieces fell over. They did. Once I got to the Sun-Times, I, I got put on the new side initially, um, and sort of liked it over there. So here I am.
0: What was the story in college?
1: It was um, it was uh, on Cheryl Swoops. She was the uh, women's coach at the time, um, at, at uh, women's basketball coach at the time, um, turned out to allegedly not be treating her players too well. And uh, myself and uh, one of my one of my colleagues at the student newspaper there. She's actually also at the Sun Times now. Covers uh, the Sky, Madeline Kenny. Um, we we broke that story. Um, It got pretty big. And that sort of, just as I was starting to say, let me go on the business side of things, that that sort of reeled me back into journalism.
0: Yeah, I remember that because I I had a lot of friends at the time that were working at Loyola. And I literally, like a few weeks before, had interviewed her Mm -hmm. on on the score. And then I, I saw, I remember seeing your story because a friend of mine sent me, the Phoenix, right. That, that the Loyola paper, yeah. the Phoenix, there you go. It, it sent me the Phoenix. And I was like, what, what, <laughs> like what is going on up there in Rogers park? Like it was, it so what was it like to do that story?
1: It was, it was crazy. Cause you, you sort of go into, um, I mean, you're a college kid, right? You're, you're still learning, uh, learning the craft. You're, you're not necessarily expecting to, like break something big. Um, so when we started getting those tips and we started realizing, hey, this is a pretty big story, and we started to report it, and then the the school launched an launch investigation, it was like, oh, we might have actually found something here as students. Um, and then, I mean, one thing after another, that next week, we're on Outside the Lines on ESPN. And as a student, I mean, you you can sort of see why that would draw me back into journalism. I and mean, I'm like, this might be something that I like, uh, that I'll like doing as a professional. So, yeah, it was crazy to, to be able to do that type of thing as a student, um, and, and get that type of attention. I mean, the New York times was citing our reporting ESPN, you all of the major national outlets were citing our reporting. Um, and so, yeah, as a, as a student who hadn't graduated yet, that was a good feeling.
0: What do you think you learned from that experience?
1: Um, one is that as journalists, we have to earn people's trust, um, and it's not necessarily a given, um, cause when we, when we first started looking into it, there were a ton of people who didn't want to talk to us. Um, players didn't want to talk to us, uh, people around the team, they were just like, you're not going to make the situation better. Um, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing you can do to help us. And then we we pieced together what we could, got that out there, and then one by one people started talking. And so once they saw that they could trust us, um, they 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 started confi- confiding in us a little bit more.
0: It's interesting because I've been I pay a lot of attention because I work at DePaul to what the students at the DePaul you have been doing, and I think that they do for for college students. I think they do excellent journalism, like the journalism that you were doing. Did you feel any pressure from the administration because you were writing stuff that while it was helpful for the students didn't necessarily make Loyola look very good
1: it it did not um I I don't know that it was pressure um, necessarily like behind the scenes trying to get us not to write stories um, i I think it was more just the regular reporting pressure of a source has a a bad story that's about to come out on them. They're going to try to downplay it as much as they can. Um, I mean, we, we had some unfortunate early interviews, um, trying to write that story with, uh, some people in the athletic department over there. I don't want to name names. Uh, that's fine. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was simple stuff. Like we'd walk in and, um, they're not necessarily treating us as adults, even though we have this huge story that's about to make them look terrible. And it'd be like, oh, you guys like even have your little notepads and everything. And it's like, I don't think you understand the gravity of what we're talking about here. Um So yeah, I mean, once the stories came out, I think they, uh, I think they started to learn that we were serious.
0: What did that, that feeling of vindication, what was that like? Cause you go through working through the story, following all the proper steps. You get the story. The story goes nationwide. When you have that validation, I imagine you're probably walking around a little puffy chested. Um,
1: Yeah, I mean, a, a little bit. I'm not going to deny that. Um, Like I said, especially as, I mean, we we're, were kids. We are like 20, 21 and not graduated college. And yeah, yeah knowing that your reporting is um, accurate first of all and and seeing that it caused this investigation eventually caused um, this person who a lot of people were saying caused them trouble to lose her job um, and at the end of the day helped a lot of people yeah I mean you, you feel you feel uh, you feel some type of good way that, that you did some type of good work
0: so you you get that story, and now you're you're like all in on the the journalism aspect of it. How did it manifest itself over the rest of your your college career that you were like, okay, now I'm invested in in doing journalism. I don't know that I did anything in particular.
1: It was just I kept working for my uh, student newspaper, the Phoenix. Um, ended up landing an internship at the Sun Times and tried to work uh can we swear on here yeah work my ass off yeah all right <laughs> uh just just work my ass off uh at, at the sun times in my internship and that got me noticed um and at at, at first when i was when i was turning that sometimes internship into a job the deal was going to be that i would start on the new side until i because I, I started working a couple months before i graduated part-time and the deal was just to get me in the door since there was an opening, I'd do the new stuff uh, for a few months. And then once I actually graduated, I'd move over to the sports desk. That didn't end up manifesting in any meaningful way. Um, and so I, I stayed on the new side and from, from there just sort of grew and um, let it take me where, where it was gonna take me. But I, I enjoyed it, I, I, I think I realized once I started to do that work that it wasn't necessarily the sports aspect of it, that, uh, that made me like it. It was just the reporting part of it. Um, and I can tell you that a few years ago when I was in college, I never thought I would enjoy doing what I do now, but it, it, it's been fun.
0: Is there any part of you that still craves to go back to covering sports? Yeah, at some point,
1: um, I think I've realized though that the like beat writing is not going to be for me. um, Facts. (laughs) It's just, I mean, I have friends who were, who were beat writers. Um, It's, it's, it's not necessarily what I want to do. I don't think it's for me. Um, But down the line, I mean, if there's some type of, um, like sports investigative opportunity or sports business opportunity. That's something I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to at some point in my career. Um, other than that, I mean, I, I, I miss I, I miss sports a little bit, um, but it, I'm, I'm fine without it. It's not, it's not something that um, I'm just dying to get back into right now.
0: With cover and news, what's something that you weren't totally prepared for? when it came to covering news? Mm. Um,
1: I mean, the, the hardest thing for me still is talking to families who've lost a loved one. Um, especially because when we're covering them, it's usually, I mean, that day or the day after, or two days later, and just coming from a sports background or coming from any background, really, you can never be prepared. Um, for what it's like talking to someone on the worst day of their life. Like, um, I mean, people who like, I covered the uh, Aurora mass shooting. um, Was that last year? Last year, I think. Um, And I mean, talking to some of these families who've just lost a son or a husband or a brother. um, And they have. I have to try to get them to tell me about them while I am also processing. Like, holy shit, five people, six people just got killed, and also processing talking to a friend of the shooter and just what sort of led to that. Because not not to, i mean, we the the people who commit these acts are still people. They they end up being monsters. They commit monstrous acts but at the end of the day, they were people, um, before they, they died and before they committed these acts and they have families and they have friends too. And being able to, to sort of process all of that and talk to them and hear what they want to say, um, the families and friends of everyone involved, it's just, it's a tough thing to do. Um, and, regardless of the background it was just something that you're not necessarily necessarily always ready for
0: it's hard to wash off isn't it
1: it is yeah i mean
0: going to when
1: i first started at the sun times i was working overnights um covering crime in chicago and just being at uh like a murder scene and you're hearing families screaming out in pain i lost my baby i lost like I still remember standing outside the emergency room at um, Lurie Children's Hospital with a a dad just like collapsed in the street because I think the kid was five. He was shot and killed Um, and like no one, no one in the family was intended. Um, I think that case, it was mistaken identity. They shot at the wrong car and just seeing someone in front of you, I mean, literally having the worst day of their, of their life, and then having to try to talk to them to, to see how they're feeling. It's like, I mean, shit, what am I supposed to, what am I supposed to feel inside too? You know, I mean, I'm not them. I don't, I I can't ever feel what they're feeling, Um, but I still do
0: feel something and that's just tough. What have other reporters told you about, learning how to process all of this. Cause it's, I always marveled at the people when I worked in television that work news and you'd see them at three 30 in the morning, going live places where there had been a murder or someone's missing And I, I, just, the processing of it, I think is so difficult. So what advice have, have other people given you on, on being able to be passionate about the story, but still being objective And yet still being a person yourself. Yeah.
1: And it's, I think all of it, um, all of it is one thing you, you do have to, um, you do have to take care of yourself. I mean, self-care is really important when you're, when you're dealing with that type of trauma. Um, But I mean, we can talk about objectivity at some point, but objectivity to me is bullshit. There's, there's no objectivity in journalism. Um, and when we're talking about a family that's, that's lost a loved one. Yeah. I mean, to, to be able to write like a heartfelt story and, um, and to share their emotion, you can't be emotionless. Um, so, and the, the, the other part of that too, is if you don't allow yourself to show that emotion, then it's just going to pile up and pile up and pile up and pile up and, down the line I mean so you're you're gonna explode like you you need to be able to process those those emotions um I'm not saying like sit there and cry in in front of the family but process what you're seeing try to understand what you're feeling because when you when you see a kid that's shot you're gonna feel something and then sort of channel that into I'm gonna I'm gonna be respectful and sympathetic to this family. I, I mean, the, the sympathy part of it's the most important. I'm going to be sympathetic to this family, um, so that they can share what they're feeling, and then just go home and log off. Yeah, I mean, can't be attached all day. Can't, um, can't, can't bring work home with you <laughs> if that makes sense. And and it's it's hard because it's stuff that does stay with you. Um, but just self-care, taking time for yourself. I mean, every every few months I, I get overwhelmed a little bit and I take a couple of days off just to reset um, or I'll I'll log off Twitter for a week because Twitter's mm. a hellhole that mm. no one uh, should be on for, for that long.
0: So um, yeah, just self-care is really important. When you're not in the digital space, like what are you doing to kind of just be you?
1: Um, I mean, these days, not much. There's, true. There's not much to do. Um, watching, watching all of the the super shitty Chicago sports teams that uh, <laughs> <laughs> that we're stuck with. Um, I mean, I I don't I, I uh, like love to play soccer. I'm a big uh, big soccer guy. Um, sometimes I'll hoop with some buddies, but not as much lately because uh, there's just there's not
0: really
1: anywhere
0: to go and i'm not trying to be around people <laughs> no i am i completely understand what you mean by that uh yeah. i'll get back to the sports teams in a little bit i want to go back to what you said about objectivity <laughs> i mean yeah you're wearing a bears cap we got to go back to it we we definitely I have am. to go back to it so am, am i right in feeling that objectivity is bullshit but you work to try to be fair yes so fairness and accuracy are,
1: I mean, you can't you can't be a journalist without fairness and accuracy. But when we talk about objectivity, it, it's you 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 have to use your background to inform your reporting, right? So um, a black reporter, for example, uses their background; they use their experience as a black woman or a black man in America to inform how they're covering protests or how they're covering, uh, civil unrest or how they're covering a police shooting of an unarmed black, that background tells them a lot of what they need to know to be able to cover that story. That doesn't mean that they're not objective. It means that they're more informed about what they're writing about. And I mean, for, for decades, objectivity in journalism has sort of been pushed as just if we're being frank, women and people of color can't be objective when they're covering something that has to do with them. And that sort of takes the the straight assumption that um, white men are the ones with the objective viewpoint. And we're we're, we're centering um, voices that do not represent the majority of people in this country if we're doing that. And so. Yeah, I mean, people of color and, and women for the longest time, you can even look at the Pittsburgh Post Gazette. There is a young black woman, right, um, posted a joke on social media that um, I think it was a Kenny Chesney concert, if, if I'm not wrong, just like the aftermath of all the garbage on the ground, posted a joke saying, this is from the looting. Oh, no, wait, it's from a country, uh, country music concert. And her newspaper banned her from any coverage of the protests. And it's like, you, you are banning a black woman from covering basically an uprising protesting 400 years of racism in this country. Where do those two things add up and objectivity is, is, has always been used as, um, in journalism as a shield to protect managers from really saying what they want to say, that um, someone who's, who's trans can't cover the death of a trans woman because they're going to be too sympathetic to the trans. I mean, it's like, what are we talking about at that point, right?
0: Right. It's a, it's a slap at your own professionalism that you can't take your background and use it as a lens to tell the story because you'll be too hysterical because right. of what's happening
1: and and the problem is is okay if we're talking about police killing a black man why is the 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 other side of it the white man's side of it the objective one right i mean if there's two sides of this thing anyone should be able to cover it right there's no reason that a black reporter shouldn't be able to cover it that i would in fact argue that since Um, the person who died, the victim in the case, they are the ones that we need to be sympathetic to because they lost their life. And the person who knows how to be sympathetic to them is a person who has experienced what they're experiencing in America. And so, yeah, I mean, objectivity is bullshit. There's, there's no such thing as an objective reporter. Every reporter has their background, um, recognizing that background and making sure you're not being biased, that's important. But yeah, everyone has a background. Nobody's a robot. We, we we have to use our experiences to inform our reporting. There's not a single reporter that doesn't have a backstory that, that goes into how they view the world.
0: How do you think your background plays into how you report? Um, I mean, I, I was raised by... A uh, single widowed
1: mom, um, with her sister, my aunt. So I mean, I I call them both my mom. Um, my my dad, when I was young, got sick with ALS and passed away. I mean, that type. We we didn't grow up rich. I, I wouldn't say we grew up poor, but we certainly didn't grow up rich. Um, I mean, my my mom just uh, last month bought her first ever house. Um, she she's rented for. The 40 years that she uh, has lived in the U.S. since she immigrated um,
0: Where'd your family immigrate from? Uh,
1: they came from Lebanon Yeah so I mean that's the type of stuff just as I grew older too and, and recognized some of the experiences I had in school growing up in a majority white school out in the suburbs um, and how, how different kids uh, did different things that uh, that certainly now um, informs my reporting because I cover CPS. Um, just knowing how how schools operate out in the suburbs, um, yeah, it's just my, my uh, and and I'm also a brown person growing up in the U.S. So that that definitely informs uh, how I view the world.
0: It's interesting because I had Paula Ferrer. She was on one of the episodes. A lot not a lot of people know this that she's Lebanese. Mm-hmm. And and I, I had a conversation with her about whether or not she considers herself a woman of color. Because to see, Paula, you would go, oh, white presenting. Um, and she, she says she still hasn't quite figured it out yet. So it's interesting to hear you say very strongly that you are a person of color. Where How do you think that you came to that realization? Because I, I've had students that are from the Middle East and they're not quite sure on where they fall when we talk about a racial spectrum. Yeah. And there, I mean, there's definitely this whole
1: issue of colorism too, where um, the, the darker the skin, usually the more prejudice and discrimination the person faces um, even among people of color. So I, I, I've always said this and I'll, I'll say it until I die in no way have I ever in my life faced any of, of the the things that um, uh, black uh, Americans and darker skinned brown Americans face in this country. At the end of the day, my, I mean, just looking at my skin color, my skin color is brown. So when I walk into a room, you sure know that the white people there don't consider me white. And and that's, that's sort of where um, where I, I make that conclusion. There are a lot of Middle Eastern people who can walk into a room and yeah, I mean, people think they're white. They, my, uh, my family, a lot of my family has pretty fair skin. Um, yeah, pretty light skin. Um, I don't know how I ended up having a little darker skin, but, um, yeah, it's just however people see me when I walk into a room, that's, that's sort of, uh, in terms of my skin color, that's sort of how I how I judge that.
0: Why do you think in America – I talk about this a lot on this particular podcast. Uh, I did a show with Michael Kim, and Michael and I used to talk – we talk about – Michael. He's the best, right? Yeah. And I know that you I probably that. know him from AAJA too. Yep. He's He really opened my eyes to conversations because a lot of times you can be myopic. You're only thinking about how the issues of race – how they affect whatever it is that you are. Mm -hmm. And, And we have a continuing conversation about the spectrum and how race in America is often only talked about as black and white and that there's a lot in the middle. So how do you deal with the fact that a lot of times the issues that you may be going through aren't even really addressed in the greater conversations about race and ethnicity in the United States.
1: Well, I, I, I want to go somewhere else first. Cause okay. I, I think, I, I think um, when we talk about racism and, and a lot of times, like I think there are times when we group it as black and white, but I think as, just in in mainstream discourse racism has sort of started to um people started to talk about racism more uh recently people are are starting to
0: deconstruct it a little bit right
1: right um i think we need to be careful not to group people of color versus um as like one group because it's it's not a monolith right and like myself um Arab Americans, um, Southeast Asian Americans, like Chinese Americans, Filipino Americans, the racism that we face is a lot different than the racism that black people face and a lot of Latino people face. Um, The racism that we face is more name calling, right? And it's, it's that type of bigotry. Whereas when we're talking about racism in America, that structural racism against black people directly leads to poverty it it directly leads to um uh, poor health care it directly leads to stuff that that causes people to be poor and to die and we don't face those same things i mean we're usually in that type of systemic racism we're sort of given a pass um I mean, if you look at, if you look at income in America, Asian Americans usually are are almost on par with uh, white Americans. And that's not to say that we don't face, or we don't face racism in this country because we do. I mean, I just had a friend, um, he covers the race for the athletic, Josh Tolentino. He was in a, a grocery store last week and this white couple started telling him go, he's a Filipino American, um, a, a son of immigrants, told him to go back to China, take the virus back with you. Um, they, they used the term, the really racist term, Kung flu. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, people who are Asian American, people who are Arab American, we all face racism too. And it's, it's terrible, it's awful. But a lot of times the stuff, I mean, I've been called names before. Um, there are definitely biases that people show. I mean, I, I grew up loving sports and a lot of white kids in my high school didn't necessarily think I knew what it was talking about. And I can suspect, I know why, um, but that doesn't lead to poverty, right? That doesn't lead to um, segregation. In, into, into school districts or into areas of the city with under-resourced schools. It doesn't lead to um, communities that are being plagued with violence because there's nowhere else to turn. It just, it, it leads to hurtful stuff, but not any of that. And so, yeah, when we're talking about that spectrum, back, back to your question, there is a spectrum. Um, there are people somewhere in the middle along the way but I, I really, really don't want people to, to pretend that all people of color face the same racism because we don't.
0: What's it like covering schools?
1: People care. <laughs> that's that's probably the, the number one thing I can say. Um, parents care about their kids' education. And when you write about it, they care about that too. Um, I, I don't know that I've written about anything ever before that people cared about more than education um yeah it's just parents teachers they they really want to know what's going on they they have an opinion about everything that's going on and they they're never afraid to share um and it's it's when when you're looking at a district like cps it's the third biggest public school district in the country it's got th- uh three hundred and fifty five thousand kids um and there's a lot of different outcomes across the city based on what zip code you live in. And it's, I mean, looking at, looking at the world through education has opened my eyes to a lot of stuff that I hadn't thought of before because that wasn't my, my experience. Um, and so that has allowed me to see, okay, when you grow up in a school that doesn't have a nurse, Because, I mean, to me, growing up in a suburban school, this was never anything that I ever considered, right? I think we had two nurses. Growing up in a school without a nurse or growing up in a school that a nurse is going to stop by on Tuesday or growing up in a school without a social worker or with um, class sizes of like 32 kids. You start to see where some of these, systemic inequities lead to different outcomes for different people. Um, You start to see where segregation really kicks in in Chicago. It's just all of these systemic issues that we're talking about now in this moment, after, um, after all of the protests, after George Floyd was killed, you really start to see why a lot of this stuff happens early on in people's lives.
0: It's a subject that's so big. When you're given that beat, how do, how do you hit the, the ground running on something that's so big?
1: I, I didn't really have a choice uh, on hitting the ground running because the teachers went on strike like uh, two or three months into my time on the beat. <laughs> so <laughs> that was, I mean, boom, right away. Um, his, historic strike. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you sort, of, you sort of have to take your time. It's not something you can understand right away. I've been doing it a year now covering CPS and I still would say I have a lot to learn. Um, definitely no tons more than I did this time last year. The the strike uh, helped a lot actually, because you're sort of thrown into the fire and, and um, understand things, h- how things work right away. Um, but it, it's just, it's looking at every corner of the city, looking at, for me, my focus on the beat is looking at inequities and seeing how, um, based on the skin color that people are born into, or based on the neighborhood they're born into, how that changes their their outcomes. Um, and yeah, I mean, there is a lot to to focus on. There's a lot of good stuff too to focus on, which is which is a lot of times we sort of miss that in the in the news industry that. Not everything has to be uh, uh, gloomy. Not everything has to be bad news. We can we can also write about the good stuff. So it's just it's striking a balance between all that.
0: What's something that you've learned after taking over the beat that shocked you and may shock people who are reading your work?
1: Huh? You might have you might have got me stuck on something. Yes. Oh. <laughs> Um, let me think to that. I'll,
0: I'll think of something by the, by the time the podcast is over. All right. Not, not a problem. (laughs) When you're there in the moment of covering something like a teacher strike, how do you start? Well, where, how do you, you, you end up starting to figure out who to talk to, why they're important to talk to and how to get the real information out to the people
1: you sort of have to do the work ahead of time. I mean, it's just like everything. It's about the preparation. If if you start covering the teacher's strike the day that it starts, you're going to do an awful job. I mean, everyone else covering, it's going to do a better job of you. It really started, I mean, as soon as I, the teachers went on strike in October, as soon as I got on the beat in August, I started preparing, um, cultivating sources, um, talking to teachers, talking to teachers union uh, folks talking to to folks who work at cps just building up those sources Um, and and you you have to sit back and think who does this affect who's involved with this and that's that's who you talk to and at the end at the end of the day when it comes to schools um, a very very valuable lesson that i was taught by my predecessor on the beat lauren fitzpatrick she's Great reporter, one of the best reporters in the city. She taught me always remember it all comes back to the kids. So anything that I'm covering, I sit back and think, how does this affect children? Because at the end of the day, schools are about children. They're not about teachers, they're not about parents, they're not about administrators, principals, whoever it is. All of it is about children. And so from there, I think well, how first of all, how can I get a child's voice in this, right? And I mean, it, that's that's been that's been a challenge during the pandemic. Um, that I've, I've actually been ha- happy about because it's it gives me something to do. Figure out how I'm going to talk to these people, um, and and you you have to figure out all sides of of the story. I mean, the teachers are going to say one thing, the district's going to say another the union's even going to say something different than what teachers on the ground are saying, figuring out who all those people are. You say, let me make the contacts before the strike happens in case it happens. And then just talking to those people every day. I mean, it's no different than a sports beat, right? You're, you're covering the bears. Let me, let me get friendly with, uh, Mitch Trubisky. Although maybe Nick Foles, um, (laughs) Let me, let me get friendly with uh, David Montgomery. Let me get friendly with Alan Robinson, whoever it is. Let me get friendly with them so that when a story is coming up, they're going to be willing to talk to me. They're, they're, they're open to talking to me because they knew me when the stakes were worth as high. They knew me when um, there wasn't all this pressure for them to talk. And I mean, any, for any reporting
0: news, sports,
1: um, it doesn't matter. That's that's probably the most important part of the job is building those relationships.
0: When it comes to your job, I, mean, I would imagine that there are a lot of people that want your ear because of your ability to tell stories and the power of the Sun Times. How do you navigate the information that you're being given and the benefits of you writing something? Because of the information that you're given. In sports this happens all the time. Where an agent tells you something. And it actually frustrates me. Uh, that people will just run to the air. Or run to writing something. Because an agent told them to do it. Instead of saying. Well wait a minute. Am I being used? Am I being a, a tool here? And not understanding the the beneficiary, beneficiary uh uh, aspect of it. So, for you, what's that like? Oh, it's. I mean, every day on the beat is like that.
1: There's, there's so many people from. I mean, all of these, all of these different organizations that um, say that they they help kids, and we do this for poor families. Um, obviously, they're pitching something to me so that they can get something out of it, right? Um, whoever it is everyone has an intention of reaching out there there's no one who just wants to be in the paper for the sake of being in the paper there's a reason behind it and so yeah anytime anytime someone reaches out to me out of the blue i always think why are they doing this it, like what's the reason for them wanting to be in the paper um and you have to balance that sometimes if, if the source is important and, and you, wanna, you want them to help you later on, not to say you have to carry their water, but yeah, if they, if they want, uh, if they think something's important and worth the story, then you can, you can give it a shot um, while still sticking to fairness, accuracy, all of that, because we're not gonna write something that, that isn't worth writing um, just to please someone. Um, but yeah, if if, uh, if someone's pushy enough and and they can help us down the road, then it's uh, it's it's not always a terrible idea.
0: So if, if if my math is right, you're like the end of the millennials, right? Like you're right on the border. with I'm Gen Right. 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 At the end. Yeah. How do you think that plays into how you're perceived and what you know?
1: In terms of how I'm perceived, when I first started working um, a a few years ago at the Sun Times, before I started rising, um, I was I was viewed as a little kid. And I I think to an extent, some people still view me that way. I I think it also has to do with the fact that um, I was always clean shaven. And if you see me without a beard, you will actually think that I'm 15 years old, maybe 16.
0: I've seen some um, so, of the pictures from Loyola. So, yes, I completely right. understand. <laughs> there
1: you go. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I shaved my beard um, sometime last spring, just went completely clean shaven. And I had four or five people on the same day at work tell me, you look like a teenager. And so from there, I, I, I grew out my beard to an outrageous length over the past year. <laughs> I shaved it down a little, but but it, it was it was getting... James Harden length, uh, a month or two ago. Um, but yeah, I mean beard aside, I I was for sure for a long time perceived as a, a kid. Um, and to be honest, I was, I mean, you don't, you don't go into the industry at 22 years old and expect people to treat you like a seasoned vet. You have to earn that respect. And so since then i I mean at first it was like what the hell you guys are not respecting me like i actually work here Uh, not 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 necessarily colleagues but just anyone involved some colleagues um once once i show and prove that i can i can do this thing that's when i start to get respect and i haven't i haven't felt um disrespected because of my age and the past year, I would say, because I have shown that I know what I'm doing. I can do this job. And once people see your track record of work, they no longer care about how long you've been in the industry. They know that you can just do the work. Um, and yeah, it, it's been, it's been, uh, been interesting to, to see how you, how p- different people perceive you.
0: I have the advantage of, working with students. So I mean I, I literally have students that I could have been your professor. Okay. And I find it interesting how we often discount those voices. Like we we will often say, oh well they're kids why how do you think your generation and maybe the, the generation that you're right on the border with how do you guys consume news? and how could we change the way that how could we adapt as an as a media capital M to get more news to them more frequently
1: well i mean i think the biggest thing is we have to listen to
0: them when when
1: kids tell us that something's not working or they don't like something we have to believe them and not just keep going the same path that we're we're going down i think a huge huge part in getting younger people to read the news or to watch the news or whatever whatever form it is is educating people, young kids in school about the importance of news, um, educating them on news literacy, um, how to how to trust what they're reading, how to how to um, spot misinformation. I think all of that stuff is tied because when kids are growing up, and it, it, it's not like, I mean, when I was growing up, boom, every morning there's a newspaper, right? And so I learned right away, okay, this thing comes every day, the people writing in it know what they're talking about. They're, they're not some blog, even though blogs didn't exist when I was growing up, they're not some blogger that uh, is just spouting stuff online. These people know what they're talking about. That doesn't really exist anymore. And I mean, I work for a newspaper, but there, there is a huge gap between the older generation and all other younger generations when it comes to reading a newspaper. There's That's not a shocking statement, obviously. And so we need to figure out how else do we teach kids at a younger age that this is important. And I, I really, really strongly think that we need to do a better job of, um, frankly, caring what they have to say. We're not going to reach younger audiences without first being their audience to what, um, to to hear how they want to read the news and, and what they want to read. Because um, if, if we don't listen to them, then how are we ever going to fix anything?
0: I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. Let me ask you a couple sports questions. Go for it. You talked about the sports teams being miserable. What what's the hardest sports moment for you as a fan?
1: Um the the Super Bowl was hard. Bears Colts. Um that that pick six that, that sealed the deal that was hard to watch. Um I think it was Calvin Hayden. It's ingrained in my uh, in my mind.
0: Chicagoan. Calvin yep, Hayden.
1: Chicagoan. Future, future uh, bear that that broke our dreams. Um, the double doink is is fresh. It's a it's a fresh, deep wound that I'm not gonna get over anytime soon. Um, watching watching Derrick Rose go down oh. in that series against the Sixers is just. I mean, weeks, months didn't feel the same. Um, years after he came back and, and kept getting hurt. Um, Cubs, Steve Bartman was, was, uh, was a wound. Um, and then I, I feel like there's been three separate times when the Packers in the past decade have knocked the bears out of the playoffs. I can think of the, the Chris Conti misjudgment on that, on that deep ball. Um,
0: uh, Are you familiar with Tecmo Bowl at all? With what? With Tecmo Bowl. Not too much. I've okay. heard of it. So Tecmo Bowl is a video game that old guys like me used to play. Right. The Tecmo Bowl people, I'll send it to you, or maybe you, you can search for it. There's a Tecmo Bowl version of that play mm-hmm. that's hysterical because I don't know if I want to watch it. I I've made <laughs> I've made some of my actual like guys who were on the team watch it. Yeah, and they've laughed at it because yeah. it's so true. And there's just Conti, like in the middle of the play, he just stops. He right. just stops, and on and on the video of it, he just stops, and it's hilarious. Yeah, it, it's only hilarious because there's time away from it. <laughs> but I would not have found it hilarious six years ago. I yeah. I can totally <laughs> imagine that you wouldn't. But I want one of the things that you hit on. I want to talk about a little bit more deeply, and that's Derrick Rose. I feel like Derrick Rose's connection with Chicago overall, obviously, right? Because he's a kid from Inglewood. Everyone knows the story. But I feel like for kids who grew up in Chicagoland of a certain age, his injury hit differently than it did even for someone like me, who's from the South side, but I'm significantly older than Derek and you. So mm-hmm. walk me back to that playoff series, him getting hurt, and then the aftermath of it. What was that like for you? Oh, I still, I mean, it's to the point where I
1: remember where I went later that day, what I did later that day. I mean, it it really, really, I can't overstate it. It burned seeing him go down like that. Not just because of um, the team not not um, not being good anymore. I, I mean, I don't know that I don't know that they've uh, been good since since he went down that game. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I had posters of Derrick Rose on my wall. I had I had a red, a black, a white jersey. I had a, a red one that said Most bowls. I had I mean, you I had a jersey. I had his shoes. Um, Derek Rose, to to a kid my age growing up, especially being a homegrown kid, was, uh, I mean, he was a hero. It was, it was like, obviously they're different, but I, I imagine maybe to a slightly lesser extent, it's what it was like for Chicago kids growing up with Michael Jordan in the 90s because this guy just was unstoppable. I mean, this playoff series against the heat and he's, he's doing fast break reverse layups between, between LeBron and D Wade. I mean, are you, are you kidding me? This guy was Superman. And for him for to, to basically see that Superman was not invincible was tough. And um, yeah, it was just, he was, he's a few years older than me. Um, he he made the Bulls relevant. Mm. He gave a legit chance at winning something, even though, even though I think he needed someone better than Carlos Boozer and, and Joakim Noah on his side. Um,
0: they would have been the way <laughs> I think of those two guys is they would have been if you could have dropped a number two guy in there. Boozer and Noah as your tertiary and fourth option, perfect if you're asking them to do more than what they were as players, I was always hoping that there was someone that was going to fall from the sky and, and be there alongside Derek mellow mellow. (laughs) He was Nader. I can tell you this from my own reporting. He was actually interested. I when he was here visiting. He was interested in joining the bulls. And I wonder what the, what, what those two guys as a as a quasi backcourt would have even looked like. It would have been you know, fun.
1: You you know that gif of the the dude holding up the stack of cash, yeah, pretending he's talking on the phone. That's Mellow when we talk about uh him joining the Bulls. He's yeah. he's just he's holding up the cash he got from the Knicks and saying, "What are you talking about?"
0: Exactly, because that's the way that that it goes for sure. But it was, I mean, I got a phone call from a friend of mine when he was in town that was like, you know this might happen with Melo. And I'm like, what's going on? And this person told me really enjoyed the visit was blown away by the visit was thinking that he was just kind of coming here to come here and actually was kind of interested in the whole thing. And like you said, a stack of cash and it makes it easy. All right. So look, I gave you 20 minutes. I gave you 20 minutes to figure out what's something that you learned That would shock people about covering education.
1: Something shocking about covering education. Um, you did give me 20 minutes. I'm not sure I figured it out in that 20 minutes. (laughs) That's okay.
0: (laughs) That's all right.
1: Um, I will say something that has been surprising to me. Um, is the amount of politics that goes into education. Um, we can, we can, I mean, if you follow it long enough, obviously you know that the mayor is closely, closely in charge of at the end of the day, what CPS does. Um, but just behind the scenes, you'd sort of be surprised at how much of it has to do with politics and how little of it has to do with kids. Mm. Um that's something that I've, I sort of had, I mean, I, I learned it pretty quickly because of the strike. And if if you've grown up in Chicago, you read the headlines, you know that politics plays a major part in, in education, but politics, I mean, is the driving force behind a lot of things in education. Um, and it, it's not necessarily how it should be, but that's, that's, uh, that's the best I have for you right now.
0: That works, man. Nader, this was awesome. This was really, really great. Like, I figured it would be good, but I'm really happy that, that you're, you have the position that you have. And I feel like you're out there fighting for truth and justice. Like, you're the you're, you're like the poster child for the way that journalism is supposed to work. And
1: oh, there, there's been people doing it decades before me, but I, I, I am I am doing my best now.
0: Yeah, and you're the one who's sitting in front of me. Like, I I mean, look, one of my neighbors is one of your colleagues. So, I mean, I, I know there, especially on the education beat, there are a lot of people who care about it. And I think that that's, that's the most important thing, like that there's an energy that you bring to your coverage that I appreciate as someone who cares about this. My parents worked in CPS for 72 combined years. So I, I do care about this, and I care about... The, the children in my neighborhood and on the South and West side and all of this stuff. And so having people who are out covering this, who care about it is the number one thing. As long as you care about it, that then I know that you'll be guided by the right forces to cover it.
1: Appreciate that. So yeah, thanks. I th- mean, uh, yeah, it's uh, I mean, you have to, you have to care about what you're covering for the coverage to be good. Um, and and I didn't grow up in CPS. I I, I knew little about it when I uh, when I started at the Sometimes, but you have to make that investment. Um, and at the end of the day, you have to care about people to be able to be good at, at any of this reporting stuff.
0: Well, cool, man. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate your time. I know you're busy and I know that you wanna you wanna disconnect. So I'm gonna let you disconnect, but thanks for doing my podcast. It's top notch. Appreciate you, Lawrence. I told you that dude is impressive. He really, really is. And if you're not following him, if you want to know what's going on in the world of education, you need to follow him on Twitter. Nader D. Issa. N-A-D-E-R. Capital D. Capital I-S-S-A. He covers education for the Sun-Times and... If that didn't impress you, I don't know what will. He's spectacular at it. So I thank him wholeheartedly for being available and being on the podcast. As I said, there is an announcement that is need to be made about this podcast and this podcast future. And I'm glad that you stuck around to hear said pop. To hear said announcement. I'll get to it momentarily, but. I will tell you that this podcast and its growth is possible because David Hockberg and Team Hochberg are helping us out in sponsoring the podcast. So it would be great if you if you're in the market to buy a new home or you're trying to refinance. If you would call David at 855-56-DAVID and then tell him that you heard about him on the podcast. He helped me. He can help you. He's really smart when it comes to all of the issues of financial literacy that are out there. He can walk you through this process or he can run through a wall for you because that's the type of guy that David is. Go check out the website. If you don't believe me, just go check out the website, 56david.com. Homeside Financial is an equal housing lender in MLS number 1124061. We thank him greatly for sponsoring the podcast. So here's the announcement. I have been talking about this for a little while that one of the things that I want to do is branch out with House of L that I want to be in a position to offer people a platform if they need or want a platform to put things out. I think it's probably the next evolution in what happens in my career overall. I still enjoy being behind the microphone. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going anywhere. I'm still going to be doing these uh, interviews and other types of programming that I'm going to put together. I'm actually working on a pod, two different podcasts, one on Hamilton and the other on Roberto Clemente because I'm fascinated by him. So I'm still going to be a creative, but I'm also going to offer people an opportunity to do their podcasts and this, the House of L, being a place where they can house their podcasts. Which leads me to this announcement. You may have seen it if you didn't go back and listen to episode 120. Connor McKnight and I got together and we did a preview of the baseball season. And Connor and I were talking. It went really well. People enjoyed it. They downloaded it. They listened to it. I mean, we had great response. In the the two days that we had it up, there were thousands of people who listened to that episode. So I'm appreciative of that. Connor is itching to get a microphone, and I would like to give him a microphone. So we talk terms, and he is the first person that I'm signing to House of L. Connor McKnight and Joe Brand, if you haven't heard Joe, Joe's really good on the baseball tip. They're going to do a Cubs and Sox baseball podcast for House of L, and... They're gonna do it twice a week. So throughout this regular season, we haven't we'll figure out the postseason if if either or both of the teams get there. But throughout the baseball season, they're going to offer a podcast every Monday and every Friday of the goings-on in Major League Baseball, but in particular with the Cubs and Sox. Those days might change, but that's where we're thinking things are going to be that you go into the weekend and you come out of the weekend. And if there's news in between time, maybe they'll do something there, but I'm really excited. Joe has a background in play by play. He was doing sideline stuff for the Kane County Cougars. And Connor obviously was on the white Sox broadcast along with covering both the Cubs and the white Sox. So I'm really happy that those guys are available that they are interested and I can afford them. And like I was saying earlier, it's people like David Hockberg that allow me to expand this podcast to take this idea and broaden it out a little bit and make it more of a business. So this is our first new podcast that we're going to put. So here's the plan. The plan is the first couple episodes, maybe the first four, we'll see. But the first couple of episodes are going to live in the 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 feed of House of L. We're going to get you familiar with them just being on the feed. It's going to be self-contained. I'm not doing anything but producing it. And then we're going to move them over. We're going to create a feed just for Connor and Joe, but it'll sit underneath the House of L umbrella. I couldn't be happier. Connor and I talked about it. I said, "Listen, Connor, We're a very small media company over here at House of L. I can afford to pay you a little bit, but I can't afford a ton. And he's like, we need the reps. We want to do a podcast. What you're offering is fair. Let's do it. So I said, great. So from now on, you're going to hear Connor McKnight twice a week on House of L talking baseball. And I couldn't be happier. He and Joe are going to do, I think, some really impressive podcasting and some stuff that you need to listen to, which is why I'm glad that they said yes. I'm toying with ideas of offering other people opportunities to do podcasts, and I'm not going to say who because then you'll get all like crazy. But if this works out, it opens the door for the expansion of House of L to do stuff like this. To kind of do things my way. To operate the way that I would want a content factory to work. So I'm really excited. Really, really excited. So starting with episode 122. There's going to be Connor and Joe talking baseball. With you twice a week on House of L. And if you want to follow Joe. Follow Joe at Joe underscore brand one. And Connor's is all like convoluted. Isn't there like a number in there or something? I think it's C. Yeah, C1 McKnight is where you can follow Connor. But if you missed Connor, and especially right now with baseball season starting, you're going to get him a couple times a week on this podcast. That's crazy. That's crazy. I was talking with Tony about this and I was like, Tony, I'm like Puff Daddy now. I got my own artist and he's like no you're not you're you're like suge knight and i was like suge knight i guess it makes a lot of sense any artist out there want to be an artist and want to stay a star and don't want to to have to worry about the executive producer trying to be all in the video all on the record dancing come to death row A lot of sense so that's it that's the announcement i'm excited and i'm excited that you've allowed us to in the two years that house of l has been going on we're close to hitting 500 downloads and that's incredible to me please subscribe write a review give us five stars all that good stuff because we are trying to build something now and um, you're a big reason why we're able to do it Thanks for listening. I'm looking forward to some cool things. I guess I'm a boss now. But it couldn't be done without good people sponsoring the podcast. And we got some more sponsors that are going to join the party over the next few weeks. If you're a company, by the way, and you want to get down with this podcast, hit me up. podcast at gmail.com. I know a lot of businesses are trying to get the word out. We do pretty well and we'll do it with a personal touch. So if you want to be on this podcast or you want to be on Connor's House of L podcast at gmail.com. Let's talk turkey. Talk to you next time. Peace.